you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1184. Titus chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading verses 11 to 14. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 14. Paul writes this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Before we look at this passage of Scripture, Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our great God and Father, we do ask that you would help us to understand this passage of your word. Lord, that this passage would be a great tool for us. Lord, that this passage would instruct us how we can turn from our sin and turn to you not only for salvation, but also each and every day turn to you for grace that we may fight sin and that we may live godly lives that glorify you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, one day a pastor was driving a little faster than he ought to have been only to look up and see flashing lights in his rearview mirror. He pulled over and he rolled down his window, thinking frantically of some way to get out of what he knew would be a speeding ticket. As the police officer came to the window, the pastor said, Say, officer, I bet you've never been a part of a real-life sermon illustration on grace. This wasn't me, just to be clear. At that moment, that pastor was seeking grace. That pastor was seeking unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. He was seeking grace. And if there's one word that could be used to describe the gospel, it's grace. If there's one word that sets Christianity apart from all other religions, it's grace. If there's one word that is so important for us to remember as we proclaim the gospel to our friends and our family, to the people that we interact with, the word is grace. But sometimes, words can be used so frequently 
that their true meaning is diluted. Reader's Digest published an article called Overused Words That Have Lost Their Meaning. The article lists 14 words that you and I use so often, they almost don't mean what they're supposed to. For instance, the word genius was once reserved for people with exceptional and extraordinary intellect and talent. People like Albert Einstein and William Shakespeare. Today, the word genius is used for pretty much anyone who does anything routinely helpful or says anything routinely intelligent. That word is hardly a compliment today. We also see this with the word literal. When something is literal, it means exactly what the words mean. No exaggeration, no descriptive embellishments. So no, if you ate breakfast a few hours ago, you are not literally hungry for the next 50 minutes. The massive surge of the use of the word literal has made it hard to, f to remember the literal meaning of literal. The frequent use of words dilute their, their meaning and their significance. And that's often true with words that, that we use in our daily lives. It can often be true of the word grace. You see, sometimes that word grace is thrown around so often in our conversations that we forget its full meaning and its significance. This passage this morning, Titus 2, verses 11 to 15, reminds us of, of the meaning and the significance of grace. This passage helps us to, to meditate on the work of God's grace in our lives. It reminds us that God's grace is so much more than simply something that saves us. This passage reminds us that grace is something we rely on every day as believers in Jesus Christ. Grace is something that we rely on more than anything else in the world. This passage shows us how grace works in our lives. And before we look at verses 11 to 14, it's important to understand the book of Titus as a whole. We're, we're kind of just parachuting into the middle of the book. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to, to Titus in order to help him instruct people who he was overseeing in the churches in Crete. And his overall thrust, the thing that Paul wants Titus to instruct these believers in is how to live godly lives. Titus is often referred to as a, a pastoral epistle because much of chapter 1 focuses on the qualifications and the responsibility of elders. We see this in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
But it's important to know that while this is a, a pastoral epistle, the primary emphasis of this letter is not the qualifications for an elder. The, the primary purpose of this letter is so much closer to home. This letter is immensely practical to each of our daily lives. Paul's primary goal is to teach these believers, and by extension, you and me, to live godly lives, to live lives that, that display good works to the watching world. And we see this throughout the book of Titus. In verse 16 of, of chapter 1, Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul warns Titus of these false teachers, these false believers who profess faith in Christ but do not display God's grace in their life. They have not been transformed. They are not performing good works. In chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Paul calls believers to live lives full of good works. In chapter 2 and verse 14, which we read, we see that we as believers are to be zealous for good works. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Good works are highlighted in the book of Titus. He ends the letter in chapter 3 and verse 14 saying we are to devote ourselves to good works. Paul's goal is that we would live godly lives. Paul is not teaching that we are saved by our good works. Chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, He saved us not on the basis of works, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Good works do not save believers, but we are, as we saw in Titus, commanded to demonstrate good works in our lives. See, Paul is saying it's not simply enough to believe the gospel message, but rather that gospel message should be paired with our good works, displaying to those around us and to the watching world that God has trans transformed us. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul instructs Titus how young men and older men, as well as young women and older women, can live godly lives. Paul says, here is how you, the church, can 
display good works, how your lives can be characterized by good works. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't just say, okay, here is how you can display good works. Here's how you can live godly. He also provides the stimulus for godly living. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 includes the commands, the instruction. But then in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, we see the motivation for our obedience. Paul explains why we ought to obey and why our lives are to be marked by godly living. And so this morning, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, we're going to see three ways that grace works in our lives to motivate us to good works. Three ways that grace works in our lives to motivate us to good works. First, we see in verse 11 that grace works to save. Grace works to save. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What does it mean that the grace of God has appeared? Certainly, the, the grace of God has been active throughout all of redemptive history. God's gr grace has been seen throughout all of Scripture. Titus 1-2 says that God promised eternal life before the ages began. God's grace is seen throughout the Scripture. We see God's grace as he spared Adam and Eve despite their sin. We see God's grace as he chose Abraham and counted his belief as righteousness. We see God's grace in, in choosing Israel and making them a distinct people and giving them his law. And we see God's grace in promising a Messiah, a Savior who would deliver his people. God's grace has been active throughout all of redemptive history. But now, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. But grace is a concept, right? We say grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. How does grace appear? The word appear, it means the visible appearance of something. It refers to something that comes into view that was previously unseen. The word is used to describe the sunrise. One minute you can't see it, the next minute, a beautiful orange glow. And the word was used in, in Greek literature to describe a hero that would break onto scene and rescue someone from a helpless situation. Paul says here that the grace of God has become visible. How? The grace of God appears in the person and the work of the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God personified. He says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all people. Grace has appeared visibly in Jesus Christ, in his lowly birth, in his gracious interactions in the Gospels, and above all else, in dying on the cross so that we might be saved by grace. John 1.14 says it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How has the grace of God appeared? It's appeared in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very grace of God. Jesus came to manifest God's grace. And how did he do that? How did Jesus manifest God's grace? Look again at verse 11. It says, bringing salvation to all people. In his life, his his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Jesus secures salvation for everyone who would believe. When Paul says bringing salvation to all people, he's not teaching universalism. He's not teaching that God saves every single person. But rather, he's teaching that God saves all kinds of people. The grace of God has appeared to all men in that the offer of salvation is extended to all kinds of people. Can we praise God for that right there? That salvation has been offered, that that today we gather here as a church, all different types of people from different types of backgrounds, all saved by God's grace. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all people, to all classes of people. God's grace is is not withheld on the basis of age, class, gender. God's grace is not reserved for the elite. Instead, salvation is offered to everyone. And we see this in the context of chapter 2. Salvation is offered to, to young and to old, and even in verses 9 and 10, to those at that time in the lowest of society. The grace of God has appeared. Salvation has been 
manifest. And if you're here today and you do not know Christ, it's the grace of God that can save you. And no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what your background is, salvation is available this morning in the person and the work of Christ. The good news of the gospel is that all who turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ will receive salvation, will be saved by God's grace. The grace of God had to appear. Why? Because there's nothing we can do to be saved. There's nothing that we could possibly contribute to our salvation. But we're saved not because of our goodness, not because of what class we're in, not because of who we are or what we've done, but we're saved by God's grace. If you're here today, if you're listening to the words that I'm saying, so this is everyone, if you're a believer in Christ, that should stir your heart. You see, it was the grace of God that saved Titus from his pagan upbringing. It's that same grace that, that saved the people of Crete that Paul is writing to. People that he called liars and lazy gluttons. If you're in Christ, it was this grace, this amazing grace that saved a wretch like you. And that truth should, should warm our heart and our affection for God this morning. You see, Paul intends for this reminder of grace to flood our hearts with wonder, with praise, with thanksgiving. And let this be a reminder to you of the grace of God, of the wonderful truth of salvation in your life whether you've been saved for only a few weeks or you've been saved since you were five years old. Praise God for his grace. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Paul says grace works by saving sinners. And as a result of, of being saved, as a result of being filled with praise, that God would graciously save you, now Paul wants to motivate you. Paul wants you to see that the grace of God should motivate you to good works. We see this in verse 12. Second, not only does the grace of God work to save, but the grace of God works to sanctify. The grace of God works to sanctify. Paul says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, God's grace does not cease once we're saved. The grace of God extends past salvation as believers in Christ. God's grace follows us every day of our lives. We rely on God's grace not only to be saved, but we rely on God's grace each and every day. And how does God's grace work presently in the life of the believer? 
Paul says it sanctifies us. It works in our lives to make us more holy. Remember, Paul wants these believers to be marked with godly living. He's concerned about their conduct. And the grace of God, the grace of God tells us that God does not want us to continue in our sin. Look at what he says. Again, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. How does God's grace sanctify us? Verse 12 says God's grace trains us. In verse 11, we see that Jesus personified the grace of God. Now in verse 12, we see that the grace of God is personified as a teacher. God's grace is our teacher, our instructor, our trainer. One commentator said it this way, Grace not only saves, but it undertakes our training so that all Christians become learners in the school of grace. So what does this school entail? What is our curriculum? What lessons does grace teach us? Well, Paul says that grace gives us both a negative and a positive lesson. A negative and a positive lesson. Paul begins with the negative lesson. How does grace sanctify us? How does God's grace work in our lives to make us more godly? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness, to say no to ungodliness, to deny anything ungodly in our lives. The grace of God trains us to say no to outward sinful actions, to ungodly behaviors. Paul here is is focusing on what we do, our external actions. And he says the grace of God trains us to say no to those sinful and ungodly actions that we did prior to salvation. He says, you have been saved by God's grace. And now because of that, you deny, you say no to all of those sinful things that once characterized your life. Ephesians 4.22, Paul says it this way, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. See, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness, to deny the actions of our own lives, to say no to the things that you once loved, but because of God's grace, now strive to to put off. But Paul's not just concerned with our actions. Ungodly externals are not the only thing that Paul instructs us to renounce. Grace also teaches us to deny worldly passions. This is our sinful internal impulses. 
Paul's not just merely saying, hey, clean up your external behavior. Do these rules. Follow this. Live like this and everything will be okay. Paul says, renounce your sinful impulses. Say no to sinful desires and cravings. Say no to lust. Deny anger. Say no to hatred. Get rid of every evil, sinful inclination in you that ultimately causes you to sin in your external behavior. Galatians 5, 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who believe in Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Grace teaches us to deny ourselves sinful passions. And believer, is this you? Are you in this battle? Because it is a battle. When those sinful inclinations arise in your heart and in your mind, are you denying them? Are you renouncing them? You see, the grace of God works not only to save us, but to sanctify us. And think about this. Think about why we're given these commands. Right? We're not given these commands as a means to get to God. God has already saved us by his grace. Instead, this instruction to put sin off is a result of God's grace in our lives. One author said it this way, when we have seen God clearly in the appearance of his grace, we have an intense awareness of our unholiness and a true apprehension of grace instructs us of the magnitude of our sin. And we desire to be rid of what stained us before the radiance of his glorious grace. The grace of God works in our life, Paul says, to deny sinful actions and to deny sinful thoughts and attitudes. Why? Because we have been saved by his grace. Because God has saved us, our desire should be to renounce anything and everything that marked our previous life contrary to his word. And then Paul continues in verse 12. Not only is there a negative lesson, not only are we to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but grace teaches us a positive lesson. He says, second half of verse 12, that we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace teaches us to be self-controlled, to have a control over our impulses. Grace teaches us to, to live in uprightness, to conduct ourselves in godliness and righteous behavior, 
when we interact with one another, grace teaches us to live godly. And notice this. Again, Paul is not speaking about moralism. Paul is not simply concerned that you can say, yep, I did all those things. Or, yep, I avoided all of these things. Paul's concerned that you would live, verse 12, godly lives. You see, if being a Christian involved only self-control over our passions and only upright behaviors before others, we, we would get the idea that, that living as a Christian is just about rules. Yeah, Christians don't do this, or Christians don't do that. Or when I was growing up, my mom said that Christians don't, you know, fill in the blank. Paul is talking about so much more than moralism. You see, by adding the word godly to the way that grace teaches us to live, Paul is reminding us that the Christian life is one of dependence upon God. It's one of relationship with God. Paul is not simply wanting us to live lives denying certain things. He wants us to live a godly life, a life that loves God, a life that worships God, a life that is dependent upon God. You see, godliness is not a consequence of our own willpower. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship with God that results in a life that honors God. And there's a practical lesson here. There's a practical lesson here when we're battling sin. Right? These verses talk a lot about, verse 12, about renouncing certain things and living a certain way. And the truth is that so often when we're trying to rid our lives of a particular sin, we focus so much on the putting off that we forget entirely about our dependence upon God. We become so consumed about getting rid of our anger or our harsh tongue, that we, we get so caught up in that one thing that we forget that we're dependent upon him. And we forget that apart from him, we can do nothing. That we forget that apart from his grace, we cannot renounce ungodliness. We cannot say no to worldly passions. You see, as you strive to put off your old self. As you strive to, to live godly lives, you need to be dependent upon the Lord. The focus of our lives should be godly or, or Godward. That we're not merely focused on the here and now, the horizontal, but we're also focusing on the vertical. Our relationship with God and that we're motivated by his grace. The grace of God has appeared, training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives. You see, grace works in our life to sanctify us because grace works in our lives to help us renounce sin, to put off sin, and to put on righteousness. And then look at this phrase at the end of verse 12. Paul says, we're to be self-controlled, upright, and live godly lives in the present age. How long are we expected to live like this? As long as we live in this present age. Galatians 1.14 calls this the present evil age. And understand this. Paul understands the world that we live in. He lived in a sinful world too. And before talking about heaven and glory in verse 13, Paul reminds us of where we live, that we live in a present evil age. We're to live in the present. Whatever place, whatever culture, whatever time that God has sovereignly ordained us to live in, we're to live godly. Do you want to know a truth this morning? God has sovereignly decided that you would live here right now amidst everything that's going on in this world. And his instruction to you is to live godly. We live in the present evil age. We're to live in this age and we're to live godly lives. As Francis Schaeffer says, we're not to be shut up in a Christian ghetto. We're not called to live in a holy huddle. We're called to live godly lives in the present age. We're to display good works to those around us and to the watching world. You see, God's grace does not simply prepare us for the age to come. Grace is not just simply something that saves us. It's not merely our ticket to heaven. Grace teaches us to live today. We never graduate from God's grace. It daily teaches us, and it's something that we need every day. And so grace sanctifies. It sanctifies us in all areas of our life, teaching us to put off sin and to put on righteousness and to live a life dependent upon God. You see, grace motivates us to do good works. Grace works in our lives by teaching us to live in the present age. So how does grace work? Grace works to save, and grace works to sanctify. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, grace works to satisfy. Grace works to satisfy. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, we're to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In these two verses, we're reminded that we are to expect and and to prepare for our blessed hope. As believers, we are waiting for a blessed hope and a glorious appearance. We again see this word appearing. In verse 11, grace appeared in the incarnation of Jesus, in his atoning death and his resurrection. But what appears here is not grace. What appears here is glory. And this appearing, this second appearing that we see, speaks of Christ's second coming. You see, Christ's second appearance will be marked by glory. Verse 13 says, We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who appears? Jesus. Grammatically, this is speaking of one person, not two. Jesus is both our great God and our Savior. This is one of the most helpful, most powerful proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. If there's a verse to put a post-it note in your Bible for when someone comes knocking on your door, it's this one. Jesus is both God and Savior. And this blessed hope that we wait for is Christ appearing. Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the one who, verse 14, gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Here again we see that salvation is neither earned nor deserved. God was gracious in saving us. It was his gracious act. He gave himself for us. He became our substitute. He gave himself for us to secure our forgiveness. Grace saves. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. But you see, he also gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Grace not only saves, but it sanctifies. And you see, when Jesus comes again, he will come in glory. The first time Jesus came to save, the second time he'll come to resurrect our bodies. The first time he came to a crucifixion, the second time he'll come to a coronation. The first time Jesus came to a tree, the second time he'll come to a throne. See, Jesus the first time came in humility and grace appeared. The second time he will come in glory to rule and to reign. 
And Paul says here that we are waiting for the appearing of Christ in all his glory. We are waiting for, your translation might say, looking for. We have an active expectation of the return of Jesus. Ask yourself, do you think about Christ's second coming? Paul says here that they are eagerly waiting, eagerly looking for the appearing of Christ. Is this the way that we live? We're to be eagerly waiting and looking. And as we're waiting and looking, our lives are marked by God's grace. But when he comes, our lives will be marked by the glory of God. We will see him as he is. And when he comes, all our looking and waiting, all of our expectation, all of our longings and our hopes, all our desire to know God more deeply and to worship him more fully will be satisfied. Jesus will appear in glory. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul praises the Thessalonian believers for how they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son. Believers, we wait eagerly for our Savior to return. And when he does, all of our longings, all of our desire to be with him will be satisfied. We'll no longer have the feeling of Psalm 109 because Jesus will have returned. He'll judge the world in righteousness and we will be with him and see him as he is. And this grace that gives us future hope and should cause us again to live in a certain way. It should motivate us toward godliness. God's grace should, should motivate us to live as a people of, verse 14, his own possession who are zealous for good works. One author said it this way, the knowledge that our God is coming should create expectancy in our hearts that stimulates faithfulness in all our daily endeavors and grants perseverance in times of trial. Believers, God is coming again. Christ is coming again in all of his glory. And that thought, that understanding that we will be satisfied by his grace one day should cause us to live holy and godly lives. And because Christ is coming, we should desire to live faithfully to him. How does this grace work? Well, grace worked to save in the past. This amazing grace that, that saved us, that delivered us from all of our sin and the penalty we deserved. And because of that, out of gratitude for his grace, we're motivated to live lives marked by good works. 
How does grace work? Grace works to sanctify. It trains us. It instructs us. Grace is our teacher that we should renounce and deny disobedience, sinfulness, worldly desires, and rather strive to live godly each day. And how does grace work? Grace works to satisfy in the future. It works to satisfy us in the future because when Christ returns, our blessed hope, the thing that we look for and long for, the return of our Savior, seeing our Savior face to face, will be satisfied. And knowing that he is coming back again, that he could come even today, motivates us towards faithfulness. You see, Paul wants our lives to be marked by good works. He wants our conduct to be godly. And after giving the instructions of how we're to do that in verses 1 to 10, he gives us this reminder that grace has worked, is working, and will continue to work in your life. And so, believer, as you live this week, as Monday morning comes and you step out of church and back into your routine, understand that God's grace is sufficient for you. Rely on his grace and strive to live in a way that is zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace. Lord, that though we did not deserve it, though the wages of sin is death, that our sin deserves eternal punishment, you and your grace saved us. And Lord, we come before you recognizing that apart from you, we can do nothing. That we cannot live godly apart from your grace in our lives. Lord, help us this day, this week. Lord, help us help Foothill Bible Church to be known as a people who are zealous for good works while we eagerly await your return. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.